This is Payments Ground Game, where we go under the operational hood of Payments ISOs. Let's take a deep dive into the tactics you can use to strategically scale performance and your bottom line. In this episode of Payments Ground Game, we explore the importance of identifying and mitigating risks during the process of underwriting, and also once a merchant has been boarded and starts processing. Understanding risk is an essential skill for anyone in the payments industry, particularly if you're thinking about offering your services to merchants that might be considered as high risk. We'll talk about what makes certain business models and owners riskier than others, and help you try to understand the potential consequences of taking on riskier business. Our hope is that you gain a deeper understanding of risk management and merchant services and learn valuable strategies to mitigate risks effectively. Okay, today we're going to talk about why merchant services applications get declined in underwriting. It all comes down to risk. So we're going to discuss the different types of risk, what makes one merchant account riskier than another, and ways that you can help your chances to get riskier accounts approved. So let's get started. Let's first talk about the different types of risk, Kevin. Can you kind of cover this for us? Well, I mean, there's different kinds of risk. There's obviously financial risk, which everyone is worried about financial risk. You know, what happens when merchant so-and-so runs a bunch of transactions, he runs off and leaves everybody holding the bag when the chargebacks come in. You know, that's obviously risk number one. The second one is reputational risk. And this is mainly, you know, kind of what the banks is, are generally the ones that drive this. We always say here, hey, I, don't, I really don't want to be the moral police. As long as it's legal, I'm not really overly concerned. But that is overshadowed by our acquiring bank saying, hey, we don't want to be associated with this. Uh, this type of business being associated with us harms our brand, so to speak. So they would prefer instead of, you know, doing any type of business with that kind of merchant at all, they just shy away from it completely. You know, those are your two major types of risk associated with, you know, high risk. And I think a great example for reputational risk is firearms. There are some banks that just won't do it. There is a way to do that legally um, and compliantly, but there are some banks that just don't want to be associated with that. So that's one example of when a bank might want to distance itself from a certain uh, vertical and not be involved in it. Absolutely. And that's one of the ones, you know, firearms are a great example. We, you know, we love doing business with the firearms dealers that, that's fairly easy to validate. It's fairly easy to monitor. It's fairly easy to watch. It's fairly, in my opinion, uh, low risk. But that is a great example, Elena, exactly what you're talking about. That's a reputational risk. The banks just don't want to be associated with anyone selling firearms. And one type of risk that you didn't really talk about, and I think is not often talked about also, is compliance. And we have to cover compliance um, things like know your customer, anti-money laundering, and then there's the card brand rules too. Sometimes if somebody's you know doing something that they shouldn't be doing that's outside of the rules of the card brands, that, that puts us at risk because that ends up coming back to us uh, that we have to answer to that with the card brands that comes through the sponsor bank. And then we have to deal with all of that, all of the fallout from that. Yeah. And I think maybe sometimes I get too excited about a subject. I forget that not everyone is in tune to it as we are. So things like, you know, as you were saying, compliance or card brand rules or illegal products, illegal substances, you know, I automatically sometimes, and I shouldn't do this, I automatically assume everybody thinks that that's high risk. 
and that they understand exactly why it is. Uh, but that's not the case. And you, you brought up a good point. Compliance is a very big issue uh, because compliance, what compliance does when you have a problem with a, with a merchant from a compliance perspective, it starts asking others to look into your business as a whole. Not that we don't invite people to come in and look at our business, but you really don't want to put yourself in a position where someone is coming and knocking on your door and says, because you were doing business with this person, I want to go through every merchant that you're doing business with because I feel you may be hiding something from me. That's an unintentional ramification that is brought on by that compliance risk. Right. You're inviting scrutiny. And I think we never want to put ourselves in a position where we're inviting that, you know, oversight beyond what the normal level of oversight is, because the normal level of oversight is quite enough. And we don't want to have <laughs> anything beyond that. When you start engaging in activities that they think are super high risky, um, then it just it makes them want to take it up another level. And you just don't want to put yourself in that position. So we try to avoid that. Well, and, you know, you and I talk many times about you got to have a relationship. 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 That is not only a relationship that you have to have with your acquire with your ISO. You have to have that relationship with your acquiring bank. If you have that relationship with your acquiring bank and there's mutual respect for each other, it opens up and broadens the capabilities that you have as an ISO. And when I say that, some people go, "Oh, so you can get away with things?" No. It's because they respect us and because they know how we do business, because we've built a relationship together over years, that they give us a little bit broader perspective than maybe they would give most everyone because they understand what we're doing. And because quite honestly, with us, we give them access into Pioneer and we give them, you know, as much transparency as they want to see. Right. That goes back to that. We're talking all the time about relationships and building relationships based on mutual trust. And how do you build trust? You invite people in to see, you know, all the things and let them have visibility into exactly what you're doing. Um, so that's an important part of building that relationship, I think. Okay, let's move on to risk assessment and underwriting. Let's talk about some things that might be perceived as risky about certain business models. Things like future delivery. Explain to me why future delivery um, is a riskier business model than somebody who's delivering something immediately upon order. Well, there's two types of future delivery. And the one that everybody is most custom with, are accustomed to or uh, familiar with is travel. Uh, you know, hey, you're paying for your airplane ticket today. But the delivery of that travel or that airplane ticket and getting on the plane and completing that flight may be six months from now. So there's several things that can happen between now and then. So, for example, three months from the time, you know, three months into the six-month waiting period, we decide we're not going to go. So we go to cancel the flight. Well, the company's out of business. They won't give, there's no refund to get for us. So that causes a chargeback. So there's a future delivery product that the merchant provided the product, but the delivery of the service wasn't for an extended period of time, but there's still risk associated with that because the person went out of business or is unable to provide me with a refund or whatever. But what happens is there is no completion of any transaction, even though the transaction is taking place until the delivery of the product is satisfied. And in the other side of future delivery is custom. Uh, most people don't view furniture and things like that as 
tricky or risky, but where it gets tricky and or risky is especially in a custom environment or a furniture, future delivery furniture environment. I order a piece of furniture. I want it with a specific size couch with specific fabric, and they're going to go build this, then they're going to deliver this. And I put a down payment on it. It shows up. It's supposed to be red. It turns out it's purple. And I tell them, take it back. And they tell me that there's no returns on custom furniture. And I say, go shove that up your Wahoo. And I turn around and call my bank and say, I'm not paying for that chargeback. Merchant's not going to probably win that chargeback uh, because there's probably documentation that I have that says it was supposed to be purple and not red. So that's where you get into these extended delivery, future delivery, custom delivery, travel delivery type risk. Right. And sometimes on things that you don't view as high risk, but that component of it makes it higher risk. Okay. Let's get into the next one, which is counterfeit or tainted goods. How can we possibly, um, you know, monitor and mitigate risk on this item? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say the counterfeit because everybody says, oh, I've got this great website. My merchant is selling Louis Vuitton purses. Listen, if they're selling Louis Vuitton purses and they're half the price of what they are in the store, those are not really Louis Vuitton purses. Let's just all be honest with each other. They're counterfeit. And you're inviting the feds, you're inviting the local, you know, law enforcement, et cetera, into that environment because it's against the law to sell counterfeit products. If you sell a counterfeit product and the person receives the product, they realize it's a counterfeit, they want to charge it back. So those are things you just want to stay away from. You know, you can protect yourself by making sure that that individual has a license to sell that product. Uh, generally, when we ask someone for that, if they don't really have it, they just kind of fade away or they quite easily can put that together and provide it for us. And the tainted goods, I think, comes into play a lot with nutraceuticals. That's what we're always looking for. That gets very tricky as well. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that one's tricky and hard to follow. The you know We utilize G2 primarily for that because of their persistent monitoring program to go out and monitor our websites, uh, look for particular products, particular ingredients in particular products. And that's where it gets difficult. It's not just the product. It might be the product is okay per se, unless it has this particular ingredient in it that is constantly changing. And what will happen is a merchant will put that up. They'll sell that product for two or three weeks and then take it off their site. It missed, it gets missed in the uh, persistent monitoring cycle and next thing you know, MasterCard's knocking on your door and they're saying, hey, you had a merchant that was selling a tainted nutraceutical. You go to look. You say, I don't know what you're talking about. We've been using G2. Here we go. And then MasterCard says, here's where we went on October 31st. We purchased this product off of their site. Here's where we made the purchase. And guess what? You've just got a big fine coming your way. And that's no because, fun. Been there, done that. We don't <laughs> like to be in that position. <laughs> No, and the merchant will argue with you, tell you that they never had that product on there. You know, it's crazy. And that's the thing. I mean, there are tools to help us monitor these things, but we can't be in every merchant location, you know, knowing what they're selling in that location. Um, obviously, it's hard to monitor every website for the items that they have listed on those websites. So I would just say when there are tools available that you can use that help you in that regard, and that's something that you have to protect like we do, then you take advantage of those tools. 
Well, just remember, you try to monitor as best you can. You understand that you can't monitor everything all the time, but quite honestly, MasterCard, Visa, American Express, Discover, they don't care. It's your responsibility to monitor that. And if you miss something, you miss something and you're going to pay the price for missing it. But you try to do the best you can. That's true. That's all we can do. Okay. Another thing that might be perceived as risky about a business model is consistently poor reviews. Why would that matter? Well, it's like anything else. Are you going to hire someone to come out and take care of your lawn on a weekly basis? If you go and look them up and their Google reviews say that Billy Bob never shows up, Billy, when he does show up, only mows half the yard, you know, why would you be purchasing something from someone that has bad reviews? In that case, when you're looking at somebody from something from an underwriting perspective and you pull up a merchant and they have a boatload of bad reviews, there's something wrong there. Um, now, listen, we understand that the Internet is a wonderful place if you want to be an anonymous asshole and just go out and put bad reviews. But and everybody's going to kind of get those people get disgruntled or whatever. There's always going to be something. But when you run 500 transactions a month and you have an average of 75 to 100 bad reviews that you're getting every month, it's pretty easy to understand there's something wrong there. No reason why you shouldn't at least go back and ask. And the next one kind of runs in parallel with that uh, high chargeback ratios. You know, sometimes this is indicative of they're not delivering their product or they're delivering it poorly. Like we gave the custom couch example and they, you know, didn't follow the directions of, of making that custom couch. But then let's also talk about if their chargebacks are too high, what can happen? And let's get into that a little bit. You know, what happens generally what we see is we see a particular model of business that we'll say is not a face-to-face -face business that runs, and it runs at a particular level of chargeback. It runs at a particular level of returns. And what generally we see is when those companies start to become financially stressed, the first thing they stop doing is issuing refunds. I didn't say they stop telling people they're going to get a refund. They tell people they're going to get a refund. They have every intention on giving them a refund, just not today and maybe not next week, and maybe not the following week. So what happens? If you promise somebody you're going to give them a refund, the customer waits two or three days, he doesn't see that he got his refund, he's just going to call his bank and charge back. And that's where we start to see those things happening. Generally, it's, a, it's an indicator that there's financial stress in that business. If there is financial stress in that business, what happens is that business goes out, the merchant runs out of money, Chargebacks are still coming in. You can easily predict out how far and how much you're going to receive in chargebacks based off their historical uh, performance. But that's generally what happens and generally where you get bit. And then there's the other component, too, of the card brands. It comes back to compliance with the card brands. They have thresholds that merchants have to stay under those thresholds. And not only the merchants, but us for our portfolio overall, we have to stay under threshold. So we're always monitoring those things to stay off of those. Again, the compliance monitoring programs, we don't want to put ourselves in a place where we come under scrutiny frequently with the card brands and they're wanting to dig in um, more deeply on a consistent basis because we've you know, chosen to take these merchants that all have a ton of chargebacks. Well, and remember, they don't come in and take a look around for free. Whenever Visa comes out or MasterCard comes out and wants to do an audit, 
they don't do that for free. They're not going to pay for their own travel expenses. They're not going to pay for their own cost to go through your portfolio. You are. So how do you stay away from that? Stay outside of the thresholds. Don't play with fire. Don't ride on the cutting edge of, hey, if I know that I have to keep my entire portfolio under uh, 75 basis points from a chargeback ratio standpoint, why am I even going to bump 60? That doesn't make any sense. We have the capability to monitor that. And what you have to do is once you start approaching those thresholds, there's a couple of things you can do. You can go out and get some low risk business and bring it in to balance your portfolio back out. Or you can go back to that portfolio and start sorting out who are the guys that are causing you the problem? Who are the guys that are throwing your portfolio out of whack and tell them that they probably need to go find a new home? Yes, we do regular reviews just to um, weed out those kind of bad players because it's just not worth bumping up against those thresholds, like you said. Okay, we've talked about a bunch of different um, things that we're looking for as being perceived as risky in certain business models. Let's talk about now, let's flip it and talk about how we can potentially mitigate those kinds of risks. So if you're trying to, if you're submitting business to us and you're trying to demonstrate an underwriting, yes, this is a riskier business model. Let's talk about some things that you can present on behalf of the merchant that might make it a little less risky. So number one, of course, is strong financials, a history of profitability um, and a high current ratio, which is their current assets to their current liabilities. Well, and on top of that, Elena, the number one thing that we are going to look at, because it doesn't lie generally. What's your processing history look at? Let's take a look at six months worth of processing history. What's your ratios of chargebacks? Are you, you know, are your chargebacks up and down? Are your chargebacks up and down because your volume's up and down? Are your chargebacks pretty consistent? Are your chargebacks non-existent? Now, there are some unbelievable businesses out there that we've run into before that are what most people would consider high risk. But with the way they run their business, the way they handle their customer service, they have literally zero or minuscule number of chargebacks. And that's what we're all concerned about. They can have great financials. That offsets one thing, but what most folks are not going to have these phenomenal financials. Most of them are going to be like everybody, every Tom, Dick and Harry out there. They're going to be having, they're running a business. The business is doing well, but you know, it's not blowing the doors off anything. They have a good one-to-one -one current ratio, but then you look at their chargebacks and they have little to no chargebacks, crud, bring them on. Let's go. They've shown a, a history of doing things and doing things right. And this and brings up a good point in that I think that there's no winning formula. You can't say, okay, I'm going to bring in this business type and this is exactly what we need to see. Every business is going to be a little bit different. And so like you said, maybe the financials are weak, but strong processing history, okay, this is fine. Um, but it's that doesn't apply to every business type that might come on our doorstep. So it's real. Everything is always on a case by case basis because everything that presents itself to us is unique and will have its own little um, intricacies, if you will, that we need to dive into and take a look at. Hey, don't forget, just because they have a lot of money in the bank doesn't mean they're going to pay for their chargebacks. The reason they have a lot of money in the bank may be because they're not paying for their chargebacks. Right. You never know the full story until you dig in. Okay. The next one is that the owner has good credit. And this is one that I think is kind of surprising that people don't think this is as big as a deal as it really is. Why is this such a big deal? Why do we care about this? 
you know, it goes towards character, I think. And, you know, that's the way I look at it. It's what is the character of the individual? Is the, does the individual show that they have a history personally of taking care of their finances, being able to manage a checkbook, being able to make their payments on time, you know, or do they have a history of really kind of blowing things off? You know, they're consistently late with their payments. If they make their payments, they're, you know, your credit history gives that sort of insight into the individual. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. They could just be not a, you know, they're just not good with finances. But you have to be good with finances. If you're not good with finances, guess who's getting burned? We are, because they're not paying for the chargeback. And then you're having to pay somebody to go chase them down. And then you're having to pay the collection agency. It's just, it becomes more and more expensive. And the personal credit is always going to be a good insight into what is that individual's character. True. Okay. So the next one is the business has a history of delivering its products and services. And this can be um, proven in evidence of customer reviews, low chargebacks, et cetera. Yeah. I think that speaks for itself. Yeah. You know, that's generally you either have bad reviews and you have a boatload of them or you have bad reviews and you just have a couple Um, to the same end. You can have a lot of reviews that are very positive. You know, that says a lot. I mean, if you if you are doing 500 transactions a month and you have 200 reviews a month that say that you have provided a service above and beyond what was ever expected, that goes a long way into putting faith in our our putting faith in our decision to do business with that individual. Okay. And the last one is that the business is willing to set aside a merchant reserve. So this is really um, something that we might ask for in the most risky kind of merchants, Um, maybe future delivery, for example. Um, Walk us through a little bit, just an overview of how that works and why we might ask for that and what we're trying to protect ourselves against. Well, first off, I think you have to talk about what are, there are two basic types of reserves. There's my favorite, which we do not do in any way, shape or form. And we do not want to be having part of, and that's called a rolling reserve. A rolling reserve says I'm going to put a trans, I'm going to take a portion of a transaction. I'm going to put it into a reserve for a period of time. After that period of time, it will automatically release. So let's say six months. So I put a dollar in on day one, on day six, I, on six months from now, I let that dollar out. Um, a lot of issues with rolling reserves, uh, a lot of ways for merchants to manipulate rolling reserves, uh, a lot of ways for you to get really hurt using rolling reserves. We stay away from them. Uh, reserves, when people say, hey, what are what is your reserve policy? Our reserve policy is we're not comfortable with this merchant. We're not comfortable with something about them, whether it's how they do business, what their credit looks like, previous processing history, something is making us uncomfortable. In order to protect our interest uh, in the deal, we're going to take a small portion of every batch and we're going to set it aside in a reserve account. But Kevin, how long are you guys going to hold that reserve? Until we're comfortable. But Kevin, how much reserve does it reach a cap? Not in our shop. In our shop, it's going to continue to accumulate until we feel comfortable Then once we feel comfortable and we get to know the merchant a little better, then we'll put some parameters around that. Reserves are there for bad days. Reserves are there for the merchant goes out of business. At least there's something there to cover the financial liability left from the business and its chargeback risk or fine risk. 
And that's what they're really there for. They're not there to cover processing fees. They're not there to make sure that you get your profit off of that merchant. They're there to make sure that you do not take an ass whipping from that merchant financially. And that has saved us many a time. Ooh, many a time is probably the understatement of the week. <laughs> so speaking of that, let's talk about, now that we've talked about all the ways that you can um, you know, help present a stronger case for a riskier merchant in underwriting, Let's talk about, okay, we've boarded this riskier merchant. Let's talk about what happens when things go bad. The, what we're hoping doesn't happen actually happens. Talk to me about how that unfolds. Um, what are the warning signs that this is, this is happening? How do we catch this? Kind of just walk us through that scenario to help us understand the way this plays out and how we try to protect ourselves as it does play out. Unfortunately, most of the warning signs, as you know, come in quite honestly in a kind of a delayed reaction, um, whether it be bad reviews, uh, whether it be you, you know, in a persistent monitoring situation, you find that they've put up some products that uh, they shouldn't be selling on their website, but they have been, and you generally probably don't catch them the day they put them up. Uh, reviews don't come in the day the merchant makes, you know, has a bad confrontation or a bad interaction with a customer, those are always generally come in a couple of weeks behind. Uh, chargebacks generally come in three to four weeks behind when you start seeing a change in chargeback ratios. But when you start seeing these things, as we talked about earlier, you see merchants start doing less returns and the chargebacks start going up. Yeah, you, We generally look at it about every two weeks or so, but you're trying to monitor that. You're trying to stay on top of it. There is going to always be some fluctuation in these ratios, but when they start getting deliberately out of whack, and what's deliberately out of whack? You run it, you generally run for six months a rough one, one and a half percent chargeback ratio, and all of a sudden you start running double that. It's time to start looking into it and see what's going on. Start trying to figure it out. Uh, the most telltale sign is you call the merchant, you reach out to the merchant, and there's no response. Nothing makes us pull the handbrake faster than no response. No response tends to lead us to believe you have run off. Yeah, they're you hiding have left. From something. And that goes <laughs> not for the merchant, but we also want to, whoever sent this merchant to us, uh, we want to have the lines of communication open. This is when things get hard like this. This is when you really build that relationship. So uh, they're either going to be there and be helpful or they're not. And this is one of the most telling situations. Are we working with somebody that we want to work with for the long term or not? Absolutely. You know, I, and quite honestly, it's not always just the merchants. Sometimes you have relationships where, wow, there's just an unbelievable ratio of bad accounts coming from a certain place. What does that cause you to do? Yeah, you may not get rid of that relationship, but guess what? Underwriting starts getting tighter for that group. Uh, risk tolerance starts getting less for that group. So as you said, Elena, that's where relationship comes in. And, you know, hey, we've had a conversation recently with one of our, with one of our clients where we just finally had to, you know, they kept saying, we want to take liability or we want to help you give us a little leeway on this one. And we finally had to say, Hey, but wait a minute, you don't have the financial wherewithal or established relationship with us 
to make these exceptions at this point. We've only been together for a short period of time. And quite honestly, most of the stuff you've turned in has either a bad connotation to it, a high chargeback ratio to it, or has some sort of problem with it. So we need to kind of get that straightened out. We kind of need to get your portfolio rounded back out so that we can start working better together. Because right now, it's kind of putting our ass out in the fire for these merchants. You're saying you want to assist us because you'll take some liability or you'll put up some sort of small reserve associated with that. And we're saying, but I don't think you understand that is not enough to cover it. Yeah, so let's talk about that. When things go bad, let's say the merchant, um, sometimes when things go bad and all we're doing is collecting from them because now all they have is chargebacks coming in and there's no offsetting sales um, for funding or to be able to collect those. And so then they go to their bank and they um, tell their bank that we're unauthorized to debit them. <laughs> so now we're <laughs> unable to collect the chargeback. So now we're in a really bad place with this merchant. And that's the time when a merchant reserve can kind of, you know, step in and help cover us for any ongoing um, chargebacks that come in. But sometimes that merchant reserve is not enough to cover that incoming liability that we have. And who ends up paying for that? This That's not, you know, funny money that's growing on the tree out back. That's actually coming out of our own pockets. If we can't cover it from the merchant funds that we have on file through the reserve, then it ends up coming out of our own pocket. We're taking liability on that and it ends up costing us. So that's really what we're trying to protect ourselves from. Absolutely. And people, you know, don't understand that. I think a lot of times, Elena, because most ISOs don't have liability in these scenarios for these losses associated with these chargebacks, but somebody's going to pay for it. And it sure as shit ain't going to be our, acquiring bank, it's going to be us. It's going to be secure bank card. No, and it's and not only the chargebacks themselves. The chargebacks come with all of the fees that come with it, all of the um, the processing of, you know, managing those chargebacks and whatnot. So it's it really can add up very quickly if you don't stay on top of it. Oh, especially if you don't stay on top of it, because if you don't stay on top of it, then you start getting not only just the chargebacks and the fees, you start getting the fines. And the fines can be large and the fines, once again, you know, Visa, MasterCard, the card associations hand those down. They don't care. They actually, the way that works is when they hand us our funds for our funding for that day, they take it out of the funding. When they deposit into our, our wire for the day for the sales, they get their money and they don't ask. They don't say, may we please come and debit your bank account? <laughs> Mother, may I? <laughs> Mother, may I take this $5,000 fine from you? No, they just take it. Right. Um, and Lord help you if you ever want to try and go back and fight one of those things. It's it's ridiculous. Not to mention legal fees. If you have to get into a legal battle, not to mention collections fees. So now I've lost $100,000 on a merchant. So now I have to go hire a collections company to go out and hunt this guy down. They generally don't charge me unless they collect anything. But then when they collect something, they want 30% of everything they collect. I understand why they did all the work. But as you see, this starts piling up and piling up and piling up. And it's not just a $100 chargeback that didn't get paid. Right. And there's a lot of margin that can be made in these riskier. Well, some of them, it depends on, again, the kind of risk. There's more margin in uh, certain types of riskier business, but you can offset it very quickly with these kind of expenses if you don't know what you're doing and trying to manage this risk. 
you know, it reminds me of the time you and I were thinking about, do we want to get into a certain type of transactional business? And we started looking at it and the margins were so thin in that transactional business, which will be remain nameless. But <laughs> we started looking at it. And we said, wow, I think we could do some business here. But man, if we take a $1,500 loss, the ROI is seven years to recuperate it. There's no, <laughs> it makes no sense. Okay, so let's close us out. What kind of advice can you give for those who are wanting to board this kind of riskier business? Just give us some high-level advice on the things that they need to be considering if they want to get into this you know, particular line. You know, the number one thing I see in this environment is when people are moving from a traditional space, that in other words, they're doing mostly retail uh, mostly low, low risk. They're used to pricing everything and interchange in 10 basis points or 10 cents or some low margin environment. And then they come in and they say, Hey, I found this supplement guy online. That's got a 2% chargeback ratio. He needs a new provider, which by the way, he needs that because he just got shut off from where he was at because he had a 2% chargeback ratio. But, and they say, Hey, hey, I got the deal. Can you believe it? I got the deal at interchange in 15 basis points. <laughs> and you say, no, 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 no. <laughs> The number one thing I see is appropriate risk pricing. It's especially coming from the retail environment. Some guys are almost afraid to say the price is not going to be interchanged in 15 basis points. It's going to be interchanged in 1% or whatever it's going to be. But you need to build margin into that because if you're not building margin into that, then there's no need to take on the risk because as we said just a moment ago, if you're not building margin in there, you can't afford the loss. So and you need to plan for the loss in this kind you of You have to plan for the loss. Yeah, you have to plan for the loss. Um, so that's the number one thing I see. Um, the other thing, man, there's a lot of people out there that really know the risk space really, really well. Uh, I know in our shop, you know, hey, somebody runs into a deal I get calls all the time. Hey, Kevin, what do you think about this? This I was kind of thinking about pricing it this way. What, you know, what are your concerns with this deal? How can we look at this uh, so that it gets through underwriting? How can you and I make sure that we're putting the right package together? You know, that's, we do a lot of that communication with our ISOs here and it really makes things a lot smoother. It also lets the ISO know right away that if they bring something in, I have no problem saying, Hey, this is not a good fit for us. We want nothing to do with it. Or right. a lot hey, easier to figure that out on the front end than you know putting it all together and submitting it to underwriting, and then there's a surprise after they've gathered all this and they have an answer that they don't love. Exactly. Ask. I, I you know I think that's the best thing to do is just to ask. There's a lot of people out there that know this space very very well. It is not the retail space. Um, don't be afraid to ask for reserves. Most of these merchants are used to that. Um, reserves are very common. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're almost expected. That wraps up this episode of Payments Ground Game. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the show, please share it with others or leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.